0: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Tonight I'm going to be preaching on the subject of particular redemption, or uh, limited atonement, as we continue digging into the doctrines of grace, Um, sometimes Laid out by the TULIP acronym. So we've seen uh, total depravity, unconditional election, and this is the L, the Limited Atonement. You have irresistible grace and the preservation of the saints. Um, but tonight we'll be looking at the Limited Atonement or a particular redemption. I was listening to a guy uh, talk about uh, Limited Atonement, and he said that the, he knew a man that identified himself as a Christmas. Calvinist. And he asked him what a Christmas Calvinist was, and he said, well, Noel. In other words, he was a four-point Calvinist. He he said he believed in total depravity, believed in election, believed in um, irresistible grace, he believed in eternal security, but he just had a hard time with with limited atonement. And really, uh, that is what a lot of people have a lot of problems with. We can look at the world and see that man is wicked and we can see the travesties that go on and how we deal with one another and we can we can confess rather easily that uh, man is depraved and you can't hardly read the Bible uh, without seeing an election somewhere. Now people will try to redefine and so forth, but you can't hardly get around that. Um, people love the fact that God is saves to the uttermost that, that once you're saved that the lord will see you through all the way to the end and the love that god calls his people but limited atonement or particular redemption really just brings the pride of man to the to its end because there is no way around this particular doctrine where you can say that you have any kind of chance whatsoever apart from the sovereign grace of God apart from the work of Christ and him crucified that there is nothing that we can do in order to earn salvation or to earn God's love and favor And I think that's one reason why this is people of all the doctrines people of all these five uh, doctrines of grace people resist the most on this one There are a lot of people who claim to be four-point Calvinists, but in in my mind, and really consistently and logically, you can't be 4 points. You're going to take all of of them, and you you lose all all of them. They they come together um, because if man is totally depraved, if he is wholly depraved and he is both unwilling and able to come to God to save himself, and the covenant works guilty in Adam and can do nothing of himself to restore the right relationship with God and earn his own salvation. And if, as we have seen that God in his sovereign decree has before the foundation of the world chosen individuals uh, unto salvation. They chose them in the Son Um, The next thought is, well, well, how does he do that? How is this um, election unto salvation accomplished? It was accomplished in the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we said at the beginning of this study that the five points um, came about as an answer to the Arminian um, objections uh, to this um, this, uh, teaching. And the remonstrance uh, said the price, this was the Armenian position that, that they were fighting against at Dort, the price of redemption, which Christ offered to God his Father, is not only in itself and by itself sufficient to redeem the whole human race, but was also paid for all people, everywhere, every individual, according to the decree and will and grace of God the Father. And so they take various texts, such as the one that we read, John 3.16 and other another text where um, it, it talks about that God so loved the world. And it talks about the world um, when, and, uh, in that sense. And they said, well, such verses must mean that Christ not only died for, for his people, but for the whole human race. And was paid for every individual. Well, there's some back and forth, uh, even those among, among those who believed in what we call the doctrines of grace, uh, about this. And they said, well, maybe it is that God's Christ sacrifice was sufficient for all, but efficient for some. And you hear that even today. People will say that the, the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient for all people, but only efficient for the elect, or only efficient for some. But I don't think this addresses the real issue of particular redemption, which is that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save those that were lost. He came to die for his people. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. He came um, because, as it says in, in Matthew, he came to save his people from their sins. He came to save his people. And so particular redemption teaches us that Jesus Christ offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice to redeem those whom the Father gave him. That in eternity past, God the Father chose a particular people unto salvation. He chose them in Christ, as it says in Ephesians 1, as we saw the previous week, and so therefore, Jesus came into this world as the Lamb of God, as a sin sacrifice to redeem his people. Well, when you say that Christ's death was sufficient for all, but efficient for some, you are talking about a theoretical atonement. Because when, when, what's happening there, I think, is people take verses like John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and they say, well, okay, if he, he so loved the world that whosoever... Uh, believes in him should not perish they say well it says whosoever and for us to go and to preach the gospel it must mean that christ's atonement was sufficient for a theoretical number of people an unlimited number of people but only efficient for some so the whole idea of thinking about the atonement in that regard is based upon a theoretical number a theoretical group of people who may or may not believe. There may be billions of people or there may be thousands of people. We, we don't know. And, but, so it's taken our view of the situation. That there is a, a theoretical atonement for a theoretical number of people who may or may not believe. Now, the atonement of Christ was of infinite value and of infinite worth. I mean, that's what Paul, I believe, um, was driving at in Romans eight thirty two, where he said, "He spared not his own son, his own son, but delivered him up for us. How shall he not, with him also, give us all things, or freely give us all things? So if, if God spared not his only begotten son, his own son, he spared not; then how could he not do the lesser? It, it brings forth the infinite value and worth." of the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son who, who was made flesh and dwelt among us, that dying for our sins. The, the Lamb of God, the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God is of infinite value. But the Bible isn't talking about a theoretical number of people who may or may not believe when it talks about redemption. That is a, a, a man's way of looking at things because I don't know who the elect are, and you don't know who the elect are. And so people will take a verse like this and say, well, it was for everybody. That way we can go and preach the gospel. And that way I can go and say, well, Jesus loves you, so you, you believe upon him. And that's what we're accused of. They say, well, if you believe in particular redemption or living in an atonement, you can't preach the gospel. You can't tell people that God loves them and Jesus loves them, and therefore they ought to believe. Well, first of all, where in the Bible does it should give it? You have a lot of preaching in the Bible. You have a lot of examples of people going out and preaching the gospel. Peter and John and Stephen and Jesus, Paul. You have specific examples of uh, and Philip, you know, people going and preaching the gospel. And you have their sermons there. But never do you see read of a sermon where one of the apostles would say to a, a group of people, Jesus loves you, therefore believe. That That is not the gospel called. They told them what Christ has accomplished, and that Christ is the perfect Savior, and that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, said to go and out into all the world, and that Jesus died not just for the Jews, but for the whole world, for every tribe, for every people, for every a nation. Not just a small company of Jews, but the apostle to the Gentiles says he died for the whole world. Not every person without exception, but for Americans and Mexicans and Chinese and for the whole world, every tribe and nation and tongue. So the Bible discusses what Christ accomplishes in redemption, and the gospel calls to believe in what Jesus has done So if we focus the other way, we're always focusing on what man can do and puts the limits on Christ's work on man's um, ability. The limited atonement does not limit the value of the cross nor the worth of the sacrifice, but it shows that it was a definite atonement. It was a particular redemption for a particular people. So when you start thinking about a theoretical class of people who may or may not believe, you run into all kinds of problems with the theory of, a, it's a, almost a theory of a universal atonement. in sufficiency, but uh, a particular one in efficacy. So that Jesus dies for the potentially everybody, but only applies it to, to certain people based on whether they accept the offer or not. So you get on all kinds of problems if you, if you try to think about it. what Christ accomplished in the redemption of Christ in that regard. John Owen said God imposes wrath in due time and Christ underwent the pains of hell either and there's only three choices either all the sins of all men all the sins of some men or some of the sins of all men. So those are the only three choices because we, don't, we know the Bible says that Jesus didn't die for none of the sins of people because he says he died for sinners. So he died for sinners, so there's only three possibilities. Jesus died for all the sins of all men without exception, or he died for all the sins of some men, or he died for some of the sins of, of men. So, if it was the last that Jesus just died for some sins of men, then Jesus died for some of the sins, there is still yet sin to judge, and nobody would be justified. So, if that, some people have the view that Jesus saves you from the sins until the time you believe, and then you have to be sinless after that, and, and then if you don't ask for forgiveness, then you will, um, you will lose your salvation. You have to keep asking for forgiveness or, or Jesus will die for some of your sins, but, but not all of them. I knew a man that believed that, and I asked him, I said, well, I said, do you, what do you think about dreams? And he said, yeah, you can have sinful dreams. I said, well, what if you have a sinful dream and then you die in your sleep? He said, well, I'd go to hell, I guess, because I wouldn't, wouldn't have repented of my sins, and ask God to forgive me for that last one. So his view was that God would pay for some of the sins. But if that's the case, then nobody would go to heaven, would they? Because no one could be justified. No one could be counted righteous. Because it's not just the taking away of the sins, but you have to be accounted righteous, and Jesus gives us his righteousness. And if Christ died for all the sins of all men, then why are there people in hell? The only way you can believe that is if you're a universalist, that there's nobody in hell. Well, I know there's people in hell now because the Bible says so. So that can't be true. There were people in hell before Jesus went to Calvary. Jesus told about the rich man who was in the fires of hell. So it can't be that Jesus died for all the sins of all the people. Otherwise, there'd be no point of punishment for Jesus paid paid it all. Well, the, the, the other view, people say Jesus dies for all, um, all the sins of men, but only to the point where they believe. And they, they say, well, why aren't all people saved if Jesus dies for, for all people? They say, well, because they don't believe. So Jesus died for every man, and every woman died for the whole world that they might be saved, but you have to believe in order to to get that account into your account. Well, why are people in hell? You say, well, well, because they don't believe. Was unbelief a sin? Is um, Is unbelief a sin? Well, yes, it is a sin. Then why should they be punished? For the sin of unbelief, if Jesus died for all their sins. And, if not, why should they be punished for it, if Christ died for it? Or, if Christ died for all the sins of all the people and went under the punishment for unbelief, then why are people sent to hell, since Christ was punished for it? So if that's not the case, and if Jesus died for all the sins except for unbelief, then he didn't die for all their sins, did he? If Christ died for every person to pay their sins, but it's not applied unless they meet those particular conditions, then what about unbelief? And if that's the only condition, then it's no more of grace and it's of works, because you're not saved by grace any longer, you can save, you're saved by that one condition. So, you see how this theoretical atonement or this potential atonement has all sorts of problems with it. You see the problem with this, with theorizing and and thinking about this hypothetical group of people that may or may not be saved. So, the best way to go about this, and the, the only right way, and the only consistent way, is to go by what the Word of God says and to examine the purpose and the intention of the atonement now we're not going to get all the way through it tonight and maybe a couple weeks but but we're going to see if you look at the purpose of the atonement what it is and what God set out to accomplish then you can see that there is no other option than for this to be a a limited atonement or a particular or a definite atonement or a particular redemption that God chose a people to save and Christ came to save those people. The Lord chose, the Lord God chose a particular people in election before the foundation of the world and Jesus Christ died for those people. So just you just go through the scriptures and examine what, was, what did the triune God set out to accomplish? Now that's not theoretical. The Lord tells us over and over what his goal was, what his purpose was, what his intent was in sending the Son. In fact, we see that in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So there we see the intention of the Father. That the Son will come and save. And so that this is one example that, that the Father loved and the Son came to die for those people. The real issue people have is the purpose of the atonement. The remonstrance proposed that it was the decree and will of the Father that Christ should pay for the sins of all the people. But I think if we examine scriptures, you'll find that it was the will of the Father that the Son would accomplish or save those to whom... He gave him. Well, first let's think about the love of God. The love of God, as we see here in John 3.16. The Armenian position seems to stress the love of God, um, just in the first hearing of it, against a rigid and harsh view of, of Calvinism, but I don't think anything could be further from the truth. I don't think that the Armenian view better represents the love of God or that my view is is necessarily harsh. I believe it's the view of the doctrines of grace that honors the love of God towards sinners. Because a universal love and a general love, loving all people equally, those in heaven and those in hell, is not a, a saving kind of love, is it? It's not the love of a father towards a son, it's not the love that that um, procures eternal life for his children. It is a a general, indistinct love. And that's not the love that we have here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not um, that he he gave life to people, that he gave the world to people, he gave sunshine to people in the, the common grace kind of way, but he gave his only begotten son. This is is a particular love of the Father for a particular people. Uh, Romans 5, 8 says, God commendeth his love. God puts it on display. He shows us his love. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we see the love of God towards people that Christ died for us. Much more being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So God shows his love towards us who believe that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Being now justified, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So why? how can we be saved? Uh, He says we shall be saved, not that we hope to be saved or we could be saved, but we shall be saved through Christ and his blood. So God shows his love towards sinners while we were enemies, reconciled by the death of his son and saved by his life through Christ, whom we have now received the atonement. It is through his work that we shall be saved. So God shows his love to the enemies who Did not believe in him, but were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So it is God's love for his people here, a distinctive people, a particular people, that those particular people whom the Lord, the God, the Father loved, and that God the Father showed his love, and that Christ died for, that were reconciled and shall be saved, justified by God. Christ, through his blood, and saved from wrath through Christ. So it's the same people the Father loved that Christ died for, to whom the Lord wills will be with him. Now that's a very particular kind of love. It is a love that the Father has chosen unconditionally a particular number of of people to to show his great love and mercy upon. And he sent his Son to die for those particular people. And we have hope and confidence and assurance in what Christ has done for us not what we do in ourselves or not how tight we hang on or um, how, how good that we repent or how, you know, how great our faith is. But it is, do we have faith in Christ and what he has done for us? John Murray said, The love of God, which the atonement springs, is not a distinctiveness distinctive love. It's a love that elects and predestinates. God was pleased to set his invincible and everlasting love upon a countless multitude and it is the determinate purpose of this love that the atonement secures. This love elected from undeserving sinners men and women to be to be saved. And this atonement that Christ um, laid down in his life and that it secures secures those whom the Father loved. So yes indeed God is love, but it's not necessary that God loves sinners and give all sinners everlasting life and adopt them into his family and provide them salvation and redemption and justification. So the Armenian position may say, well, God is love and God loves all people. How can you say that God is love and, and then that God wouldn't uh, try to save all people or God wouldn't uh, provide salvation or make it possible for all people? Well, God is love. The scripture is clear about that. But it's not necessary that God give all sinners everlasting life or bring them into his family. Or give them salvation and redemption and justification. That is the the mercy of God and the grace of God. And God saves sinners freely according to his good and free pleasure. Hugh Martin said the atonement does not win or constrain the love of God. The love of God constrains to the atonement as the meaning, as the means of accomplishing love's determinate purpose. So it's not that. <coughs> It's not that the, the atonement makes God love his people so that, that Jesus convinces the Father to love us and so that Jesus dies for everybody and, and that if you, if you make the right choice, then the Father will love you based upon what Jesus did. That's not how the Bible lays it out. The Bible lays it out that the Father chose us and because God so loved the world, because God so loved that he sent his only begotten Son, because the Father so loved his people, his elect, those whom he predestinated, that he sent his Son to die for them that they might Have everlasting life. So it is the love of God and the atonement of Christ to to save his people whom he he loved. That God has John 3:16 puts the love of God prior to Christ coming to this world, prior to his death. Election puts the love of God first. Predestination puts the love of God first. Foreknowledge puts the love of God first. If you do it the other way, it puts our love first, and our love then to Christ's love, and then lastly uh, the Father. It puts the Father last, as the Father being the last to uh, to show His love upon the people. But the Bible tells us that it is the Father who loved us and sent His Son to die for us. Let's look in First John chapter number four and verse number ten. So, like I said, that, that I don't think I don't think that this view lowers the love of God, but I think it, it shows the glory of God's love, a perfect love, a particular love, a, a thorough love. 1 John four ten. Herein is love. Okay, so you want to see what love is? Talk about the love of God. Well, here it is. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, God here is talking about God the Father because it says He sent His Son. So that can only be God the Father. So here in His love, not that we love God, but that God the Father loved us and God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love, also love one another. So the cross is the, the display of God's love, as we read in Romans and here. This is the, exp- the supreme expression of the love of God, that he sent his son into the world. Not just to send him into the world to be a teacher, or to be an opportunity, or to make things possible, but to be a propitiation for our sins, that the Father so loved us that he sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice. He sent his Son to be a substitute, to bear the sins of his people, that the sword of divine justice would fall upon him rather than us, that the wrath of God would be satisfied and justice would be carried out upon the Son rather than us, and that's what the propitiation is. that that it is the accomplishment of the atonement. And so he sent his son to be the propitiation, not to be an opportunity or a chance or or put you in the right position, but he sent his son to be the sin bearer for our sins. That is the father's position. That is his aim. That That is what he sent the son to do. And the Son, by necessity, came and died for our sins and accomplished that redemption for us. And so we've seen the the love of God and the atonement. Let's think about, for a few minutes, the necessity of the atonement. The offering of Christ was necessary. Why was it necessary? Well, sin must be met with divine judgment. And there's no other sacrifice of infinite worth that could meet the demands of justice. You and I couldn't offer ourselves for our own sins. There was, and and the, bull, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. There was no other sacrifice of such infinite value and infinite worth that could meet the demands of divine justice. Now when I say it was necessary for... The, for Christ to die, it wasn't necessary that God save anybody. When Adam, when Adam failed the, the test, when he, when he ruined humanity, he failed in the covenant of works, God would have been completely just in condemning all generations and the earth itself to everlasting judgment it wasn't necessary that God save anybody because God would have been perfectly just in punishing every sinner. But God decreed in His His infinite love and mercy that He would save, that He would show grace, that He would show mercy to undeserving sinners. And so when God, in His everlasting covenant, in the covenant of redemption, decreed that he would save people, then it was necessary that there be a substitutionary sacrifice because there was no other way that we could be saved. It wasn't necessary that God save anybody. It wasn't necessary that God save us. But once God decreed that he would save, and once God decreed that he would save a particular people, it became necessary. As a consequence of absolute necessity, that because God had decreed to freely save, then there had to be a substitute. God freely, by the good pleasure of his own will, and not on account of anything that we have done, chose to save people. And since that was God's good pleasure, the only way he could do this was by the death of his dear son. Let's look in uh, Hebrews chapter 2. In verse number 10. There is no other way. I keep turning the wrong direction here. Hebrews chapter 2, and verse number 10. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons the glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. All right, so It's through his suffering. And then we drop down to verse 17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. All right, So it behooved him. And we don't use that word very much anymore, but it just means he must. He was bound to. He, he, that was what he, he ought to do by being duty-bound to accomplish what was set out before him. So it's a very strong word. It behooved him. It was necessary for him to bring many sons to glory, to be the captain of our salvation, to suffer for us, that he might be made like unto his brethren. And And it was necessary that he be a merciful and high priest, and this was necessary that he make reconciliation for the sins of his people. There was no other way. In God's plan of redemption, it was a necessity that Christ be made flesh, that, that the, the eternal Son enter into his creation, be made like unto his brethren, and offer himself a sin sacrifice. So it was necessary in that regard. It was necessary... In, if we consider the Old Testament pattern in chapter nine of Hebrews and verse number nine, and this will be the last uh, last thought as we um, start to wind this down this evening, that or as we think about the Old Testament pattern here, Hebrews chapter nine and verse number nine, it says which was a figure of the time present which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them to the time of reformation. But Christ, being a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, by, by his own blood, having entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers and sprinkling and the unclean sanctify the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now down in verse 22, it says, in almost all things, or by the law, purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ not enter, entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to it appear before the presence of God for us nor yet they should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after that is the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall appear the second time without sin, unto salvation. So the Levitical offerings were a pattern of things that Christ would do, not the other way around. So you take a Civil War reenactment um, enthusiast. They go out and they, they study history and see what they did in history. And they wear the clothes of history and they go through the actions of history. And they reenact something from the past. Well, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't go and read the Old Testament and say, okay, this is what a priest did, and so I'm going to have to do that. No, it was the other way around. That, that as the text says, that the Old Testament was a pattern of the truth. The offerings in the Old Testament were necessary because it was patterned after what Jesus Christ would come and do. So, the, the it happened the opposite way, that the history of the Old Testament was a shadow of what Jesus would accomplish, but that shadow was foreordained and planned out by the Lord God. We don't look back and apply meaning to the Old Testament, but God had meaning in the types to point to the fulfillment of the anti-type. So the Passover in Exodus had meaning because God had given the Passover as a, as a shadow of the true thing, which is Christ. And so the anti-type is always, or the fulfillment is what that means, is, is always greater than the type that it, that it prefigures. And so, since there was a necessity of the atonement in the Old Testament, we can see that there must be a necessity of the atonement in the New Testament only a greater and more perfect sacrifice. Steve Whelm said that the Lord, as the great high priest of the new covenant, willingly and gladly offered himself as our substitute in deliberate obedience to his Father's will. In doing so, his intent was not only to achieve the redemption of a particular people, but also to secure everything necessary to bring those same people to the end for which the death was designed. The full forgiveness of sin and all the blessing of the new covenant including the gifts of the Spirit and the, all that's applied to, his, to the work of the, whom the Son represents. Furthermore, due to his powerful resurrection and ascension, the Lord's work as the great priest-king continues as he rules at the Father's right hand, intercedes for the elect, guaranteeing their eternal salvation. So Christ, or the Old Testament, was prefigured what Christ would accomplish. And this Christ's work as high priest was the work of the priest of the new covenant. His whole work was a covenant work. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He was the mediator of the new covenant. He is the priest of the new covenant. And so we have to ask, who are the people of the new covenant? As the priest in the Old Testament offered sacrifices as a picture to the people of the old covenant, Christ is the mediator, uh, the great high priest of the new covenant. Well, in his priestly work, who does he pray for? You read John 17, you find that he prayed for his disciples and not the world. And then he prays for the future believers, later on in the chapter, but not the world. Who did he live for? For his people. Who did he die for? He died for his sheep, those whom the Father gave gave him. Who does he intercede for? He intercedes for those whom the Father gave him intercession, prayer, and sacrifice are part of the priest's office. And that's what the high priest does. He prays for his people. He bears the sins of his people. He died for his people, and now he intercedes for his people. So you can't separate the sacrifice of Christ from his work as the high priest. And you can't separate who he intercedes for now with who he prayed for in his life in John chapter 17. He prayed for his people, not for the world, but for his people. He died for his people. Not for all people, but for his people. Who does he intercede for now? He intercedes for his people. Those that the Father gave him. Those that he died for. Those that he prayed for in his earth. He intercedes for now at the right hand of the Father. As the Old Testament priest sacrificed for the covenant people, Christ gave himself for his covenant people those to whom the Father gave him, those to whom he offered himself, those to whom he prayed for, those to whom he intercedes for. Those that say that Jesus died for all, but then go to John 17 and say, well, he prays for the elect, those who would believe, discount the work of Christ. It breaks down Christ's work as priest and separates it into conflicting parts. Not only does it make the Father's will opposed to the Son's will, that and that God desires something but can't bring it to pass, but it also um, makes Christ's own work as high priest uh, conflicting. Who does he, does he die for all and only intercede for some? He intercedes for those that he saves to the uttermost. Well, you say, well, he died for everybody, but only those who he believes, so he only intercedes for the elect. Or does he intercede for those that he died for? Does he intercede now for those whom uh, he prayed for on the earth, those whom the Father gave him? Christ dies for all, they say, but only prays for some. Or he prays for some and prays for all, and his prayers were not answered. It also makes those Christ prays for now different than those he prayed for in John 17. The Christ is the priest of the new covenant. And as the, as Aaron didn't offer sacrifices for everybody in the world, Aaron offered sacrifices for the covenant people. He offered sacrifices for the children of Israel. Um, he offered sacrifices for their sins, first his sins and then their sins. He offered the sacrifices. The people would come to the tabernacle and they would offer their sins, and and sometimes they would slay the animal sacrifices, and then. But he, the, the priest, would sprinkle the blood. He didn't sprinkle. He didn't take the blood, that, uh, for uh, of the of the lamb, and then sp- that was uh, that was given by an Israelite, and then offer for the sacrifices of the Amorites. But it was for those who brought the offering, the burnt offering. Well, well, that prefigures the truth that Christ died for the sins of His people, those to whom the Father had given Him. Not all are in the New Covenant unless you want to be a universalist. Or if you want to say there's no safety or assurance in salvation. It is a glorious truth because the Father loves His people and the Son says, I will redeem these people. I will accomplish what you have set out to do. I will lay down my life for my sheep. And you tonight who put your faith in Jesus Christ, you you can look at him not as one who gives you an opportunity, who gives you a chance. You can look at him as a perfect Savior. One who came and accomplished what he set out to do. One who laid down his life for you and died for your sins and paid the debt to divine justice. And you can be secure in his work, for Jesus never fails. Jesus did not lose one of those sheep the Father gave him. He will have what he paid for. He will receive what um, he died for. The Father sent him on this mission of of grace and mercy to, to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people, and the Father poured His wrath upon the Son, and the Son said, It is finished. It is complete. The salvation is secure. And so when you put your trust in Him, you know that he, he accomplished what He set out to do. He is a perfect Savior. And so this wonderfully demonstrates the love of God. That God loves His people, and He he sends his son to rescue them. And he accomplishes that that mission. Rest assured tonight in Christ that your sins are forgiven because Jesus is a perfect Savior.